Thank you, Les, and thank you for being here this evening. And I trust that uh, as we finish up Matthew 18, it will be encouragement to your heart. If you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 18, I'd like for us to look together at a holy text, read the text first, then pray, and then uh, we'll move right into what God has for us today. This is the day the Lord hath made. We will do what? And be glad in it. And so I'm so so thankful that uh, you can still remember some of those scriptures, you know, and that we apply it to our hearts and lives. This is the day the Lord has made, and we will. Sometimes you get up and you just, man, but sometimes you have to will to be glad and be happy in what the Lord is doing. So I hope the Lord continues to bless us as a local assembly under the leadership of our pastor, and I trust that tonight will be an encouragement uh, to your heart. So would you mind standing with me in the honor of God's word? I want to read to you beginning at verse number 15 of Matthew 18. If your brother sins, and many of your texts have against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with him that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. It's unpayable. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. I've been amazed at that. Here's this. I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant, the king, released him and forgave him the debt. And when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a payable debt. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I'll repay you. He refused and went and put him in prison that he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Is that powerful? Let's pray. Father, we stand in your presence very aware 
that this is your word, it's not man. There, there are very challenging things in this text. There are very challenging things in this final sermon of your final year before you give the sermon of the end times, which is during Passion Week. But this message just sticks out to me as something that I need personally, something that we need in the Christian community, Colonial Baptist Church and beyond. So I pray that you would help us to be clear this evening to finish off this chapter in a way that would bring you high honor and pleasure. This is your word. We submit to it. We bow before you and say, Lord, we want your word to be our law. We want your commands to be our modus operandi. We want your truth to be the path on which we walk. So help us, we pray. In a a day that has no time for truth and righteousness, help us to live in a way that people will note our great God and not us. Humble servants, surrendered of self to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I was thinking about this particular message and thought that it might be good to um, share with you that when I was in high school, and this was back right after the Civil War, and uh, <laughs> but it was, a, it was a small high school, and so we didn't have a junior varsity and on the baseball team, and baseball is my favorite sport. My dad was very, very gracious. I could tell you wonderful stories about my dad, and Uh, He'd come home from work, and we would be out on the ball field, and he'd just pitch after pitch after pitch and hit after hit after hit. That was my favorite sport of all sports was playing baseball. And so uh, when I got into the eighth grade, um, the varsity coach came, and he said to me, Danny, I know you like baseball, la-di-da-di-da. He said, "Uh, how about this? How about suiting up for the team and just practicing with the team, with the varsity team? I said, wow, you know, I I was excited and nervous. The only number that would fit me was number one, not because I was number one on the team, but it was the smallest one that they had. So I wore number one all the way through my high school days. But I do have an exciting story to tell you in eighth grade. You know, eighth grade, 13 years old. And uh, after a while, about midway through the season, it's in the spring, and midway through the season, uh, in high school, you play seven innings, and then the pitcher or the catcher, if they get a hit and they're on base and there's two outs, then there can be a, a pitch runner for either the pitcher or the catcher in high school. So I got to be able to become that pitch runner, and so uh, I remember how exciting that was. I actually would get to get on the baseball field with high schoolers as, as an eighth grader. But the, but the story of stories for me is in... Uh, we were playing Bishop Sullivan. In those days, it was called Norfolk Catholic. We were playing Bishop Sullivan, and it was the bottom of the seventh inning. We were the home team. Bottom of the seventh inning. We were playing at Lakewood Park in Norfolk, Virginia. <clears throat> and the, uh, we were down one run. There were two outs. And, you know, we're up to bat. There's two outs. We've got one out left. And all of a sudden, the third base coach, who was Coach Phillips, my coach, uh, calls timeout, walks over to the dugout and says, Davey, I want you to pitch hit. There... I mean, what are you supposed to do? I couldn't run. I, 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 so, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to pitch it. So, and, and so watching the signs, I, he didn't tell me at the time, but, but I learned signs for the very first time. You know, how, they, how you do signs. All, you know, you see these guys over here, you know, are they wiping their face? They got jelly on them. What's going on? You know, you know and, but there, there are signs to all of this. And then there's a key 
So you touch everything, and then there's a key, and this day across the breast was key, and the next sign is what you do. That keeps, and the key changes every game so that the other team will never know uh, what's taking place. And so, horror of horrors, he calls for a squeeze play. And if you know what a squeeze play is, that means that the first pitch of the pitcher, I'm going to bunt the ball, and the guy on third base, as soon as that pitcher winds up, he's running home. i got to put a bat on this ball. So here I am standing up there, and I have never seen, you know, up until this time, I had never seen a ball being thrown 80 miles an hour. And I'm, I, I'm sitting there and standing there, and I'm, I'm nervous. Anyway, the, the pitch comes, the runner's running, and amazingly, the ball hits the bat. <laughs> and I take off running, and I mean run, I did. And the most amazing thing happens, the first base coach is waving me on because the catcher evidently threw the ball over the first baseman's head. So we're running, and I'm watching the third base, and he says, the bases are cleared, I'm standing on third base, and all 12 people in the stands are going, wow. (laughs) By the way, it's all my family and extended family. And then the dust settles, and the umpire is at home with his fist in the air saying, the batter is out. I had stepped out of the box, according to the ref, or umpire, whatever, stepped out of the box and put my foot on the plate when I bunted, and it's an automatic out. So rather than going home winners and being the eighth grader that I had this, wow, I'm going to, these... 11th and 12th graders are going to put me on their shoulders and, man, this is great, you know. All of that went through my mind in 30 seconds. I am the greatest, you know. And just like that, um, it's over. And we lost, obviously. And I was thinking about that in relationship to Matthew chapter 18 because churches can be packed on a Sunday morning and churches can have active programs And many outsiders can applaud churches because they have some kind of influence in the pagan community. But we really can be no different than a community center. If we don't follow the rules, if we follow the message of Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, we are going to be following those. If we don't, then casualties will be a part of church membership. They join the church, they're all excited, but like I told you this morning, one of our members who's now with the Lord went to church four but never fit in. So when I'm thinking of this in this particular sermon, I just was encouraged for us to follow the rules, go hard after the rules. The rule's not man-made, but what Jesus lays down here. And in Matthew 28, I don't know why this is hard for us to capture But in Matthew 28, Jesus says we're to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we'll be teaching them to do what? We are teaching people to follow the commands of Jesus. What commands are they? Well, men and women, it's the commands in the Gospel of Matthew. It's what Matthew has written. The first book of the New Testament, for me, as I understand it. And so here you have Matthew writing to the church at large. And as he writes, he he ends up with Jesus' words. Now teach the people this. If they want to be disciples, here it is. And I wonder if it's because we don't 
We're not preaching Matthew distinctively as well as horizontally, but distinctively we're losing our edge in discipleship because Matthew is very rigid on discipleship. And so as I look at this here, I just want to review with you. We looked at verse number one this morning. They have this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That is a question that seeps into the church from the world. It's us allowing our minds to be unbridled. So verse number two to verse number four, Jesus says, you've got to change your thinking. And as you change your thinking, you must surrender yourself, humble yourself, surrender. The highest act of your surrender is faith in God's plan of salvation. The reason people go to hell is because they're saying, I've got my own way. I can do my own thing. I can follow this tradition and I will get there. But humility is the surrender of self and the highest act will be that faith which puts your trust in someone beside you. And of course, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not by works of righteousness, which we do, but according to his mercy, he saves us. And when we think about the regeneration and the washing of the Holy Spirit, that takes place because someone trusts the gospel of God. It happens no other way. You're not washed through water and you're not washed through good works and you're not washed through trusting yourself. But when you humble yourself, God does some amazing things when it comes to the gospel. The third thing that I saw in verse 5 all the way down to verse number 14 is that not only is our thinking need to change, but Jesus is going to stress that our actions are to be different than the world that is around us. And at the very core of this, mature disciples must curb their life patterns. They curb their life patterns for the sake of the little ones. If you say to yourself, I don't know a little one, then shame on you because Matthew ends, make disciples, make little ones. There are little ones that need attention. There are people in this service tonight that need attention. There are people in our fellowship that need attention. And if you can't find one, go make one. Do what it says in Matthew 28. I say to us tonight that it's extremely important that mature disciples curb their life patterns. They curb it, and it's radical amputation for the sake of the disciple group, for the community. And so it's not a hard thing. I mean, look at Jesus Christ. He who is rich became what? What does the text say? Became what? Poor. Thank you. So that we, through him, might become his poorness, might become rich. Just think of this. I mean, Christ curbed everything. Just look at Philippians 2, 5 through 10. And look at the the emptying of Christ, the self-emptying of Christ, who didn't leave heaven, clinging to heaven's gate, saying, oh, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. That's Philippians 2. So Christ is asking us, and Paul does this also in Romans 15, ask us to follow Christ, who did not please himself. So we are radical people. We are different people. We are changed people. So that the world out here cannot be infecting us, but we are affecting the world by the way we live like the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ stresses the actions. This involves a radical amputation. This also involves a decision to pursue little ones. It means that we have a job to do, and it's not done until we see our Savior. Now, in verse number 15, 
It's interesting to me what happens here. And I, I want to just read one of my favorite commentators. His name is Turner. And he says this. We have seen in verse number 14 the father's total dedication to his little ones. It's not his will that they ever perish. And so you have this, go, this pursuit of the little lambs. It's an amazing story. In this context, speaking of Christians, the Luke 15 context, it's unsaved. And so he says here, this dictates that offenses are inevitable. After the model of the rescue of the strange sheep, writes Turner, the offended person must take the initiative to bring the offender back into the fold. There is no place for the offended person to become bitter, to gossip about the offender to a third party, end quote. So as you read verse 15 down to verse number 20, there are two important truths you must grasp. Number one is this, 15 to 20 is a section within a large sermon. That's why we have two parts. That's why we're going through the entire sermon. So that you understand that 15 to 20 is within a sermon that speaks of grace. It's a sermon that speaks of tenderness. It's a sermon that, that speaks of restoring and pursuing and going after the little ones. It's bridling ourselves. This is the sermon. So that when you get to verse number 15, and it just bothers me, brothers and sisters, it bothers me. I hear many people taking Matthew 18, 15 to 20 fully out of its context. And this is how we are to discipline in the church. And so they use this and they never consider that it is an orbit of grace. Just look at the lost sheep and 99. You would say, if I can use a baseball analogy, what if a guy could get up to hit the ball and nine times out of 10, he'd hit the ball? What would you say? That's a superstar. That, that's impossible. You see, today, a 300 batting average is awesome. What's that? That's three times out of 10 times he gets a hit. This is 99% are doing okay. 99% are in the fold. 99% are doing well. Well, you say, hey, that's, that's great. I mean, every now we're going to have a loss. It's okay. But that's not the way the father looks at it because every single little one is important. And so this is the orbit in which we are speaking so that when you come to verse number 15, you must understand this is embedded in a sermon about grace and humility. The second thing that I think is extremely important is that this section, as you look at 15, 16, and 17, is grounded in a theological foundation, which is verse 18, 19, 20. Verse 15, 16, and 17 are going to give you four steps, but those four steps are grounded in a theological foundation, and verse number 18, 19, and 20. So this is really important. So the issue is, in verse 17, if a brother sins against you, it's going to happen. You know why? Because saved people are still people. Can you, you got that? I mean... The people come in, they sit down for counsel, they're going to get married, and why are you going to marry? Because we love one another. I'm, I'm so glad you love one another. That, that's important. But there are going to be some structure and principles that you're going to have to follow, because if you don't follow this, before you know it, there's going to be tension with the known. Why? Because you love each other, and that's a wonderful thing, and there's tension. Why? Because you're people. You're, you're people who do not have it all together. I know that's hard. But you're looking at a pastor 
ex-pastor who doesn't have it all together either. So can I say to you, men and women, that whenever in a community you put people under the same roof, there's going to be challenges. And so, listen, here it is. So when your brother sins, you, you do these four things. Here are the steps. Number one, you go and tell him it's fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. The first thing that happens is there's a personal appeal. That's the first thing that happens, a personal appeal. Why is it a personal appeal? Well, it's a personal appeal because it's very easy for the offense to turn into anger. That's chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. And anger is what he says, well, listen, if you, you hear this about murder, but I say to you, if you are angry with your brother, or if you say to your brother, you are a fool, you are in danger of hellfire. You're in danger of the judgment. You see, so the reason you go immediately is for your own protection as well as that brother's protection. Because if you let that thing sit in your heart and mind, it will build to a mountain and you will never go. And you'll be full of anger or bitterness. Every time that person's name comes up or you come next to that person, it will cause you to flounder. So... It's important to see this personal appeal that takes place. Why? Because an offense can easily become anger, and anger is breaking the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. That's chapter 5, verse number 21 and 22. Then notice the second thing that takes place. He says, you go, oh, by the way, he says, go alone. You know, you go alone. You got that? And if he listens, there's going to be a gaining, which is really good. Now, verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. He says, Jesus refers to Deuteronomy 19 and says, now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to now go from a personal appeal to a peer appeal, a peer appeal. The peer appeal is you take other brothers with you in the fellowship, two or three at the most, and so it's going to be kind of like a, a one-on-three. So you go to the one-on-one, that doesn't work, so now you're going to have a, a one-on-three. So as you go that way, and this takes place, you do that so that every single word can be established. Because so, let's face it, there, there are personalities that differ, their communication's hard, especially when you're dealing with a difficult issue, and so you don't always hear things properly, you don't always say things properly. How often I know that. So it's really good to have other people involved in this mix. And so the peer appeal is important, and I think that when we look at the peer appeal, it's something that happens within the fellowship. You take one or two, three at the most of you, go together, and, and you go ahead and deal with this brother who has sinned within the community, sinned against you within the community. Then verse number 17 says, okay, you have a personal appeal and a peer appeal, but now you have a church appeal. Because, verse 17, if it refuses to listen to you and the witnesses, tell it to the church. Tell it to the ecclesia. Now, I'll just stop. Is that fair? Just think of this. One-on-one, three-on-one, one against everybody. Is that fair? I mean, shouldn't it be kind of like, you know, one-on-one and three-on-one and then all the deacons, all the elders, all the ABS teachers, all the spiritual leaders of the church, you, you go and do that. No. It's interesting it doesn't say here, take the spiritual leaders of the church, take the pastor, take the deacons, take the Sunday school. It doesn't say that. 
Because in a community, it, what matters is that you are a humble dis- disciple who has surrendered yourself. And if you have surrendered yourself, you are the person God will use. If you go with pride, it will not happen. If you take th- a couple other people with you and they come humbly, then it, there is the possibility of the return. There is the possibility of restoration. You begin to just stack it up and, and you, you got a problem. But the theological foundation is really interesting to me. Because the theological foundation in verse 19 and 20 says, if just a couple of you go, listen, verse number 19, if, if two of you just ask according to the Father's will, it's going to be done. You're going at the will of the Father. And verse number 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I'm in the midst. You've got the presence of Jesus. You don't need a man with a title. See, it's very important, men and women. We don't do things like the Bible says. We, we're going to try to stack the deck and get this person to fall on his knees or her knees and ask for repentance. And God works through humility. It never changes. It never changes. So when we look at this text, it is doing exactly what God has set us to do. Go alone. There's a personal appeal. Bring two or three. Establish it. And if And when that happens, you've got the will of the Father, you've got the presence of Jesus. He's already talked about that. You receive a little one, you receive me. The presence of Jesus is there. And then if that's not going to work, that person is very nigh to a position that we don't know if that person's saved or lost. And when they're that close, the whole church is to yell. And what do they yell? Stop! Stop! That's the reason he has what he has in the text. And it doesn't matter who the community is, how large a community or small a community. But everybody in the community is saying to these, stop, you are very close to an edge. Now, it says in verse 17, B, if he refuses to hear the entire congregation of humble people reaching out, then you are to have a church decision. And the church decision is very clear here. He is to be considered in that day like a Gentile or a tax collector. Matthew knows a lot about tax collectors. Matthew knows a lot about ostracization. Matthew knows a lot about this kind of stuff. So I'd say to you, men and women, listen very carefully. A Gentile tax, most tax collectors were Jewish. And so let him be like the Gentiles and the Jews who are sort of the outcast. And, and these are the ones who are on the outside of the picture. And immediately a question should come to your mind is this. How long does the church decision last? How long does it last? Interesting, Jesus doesn't deal with it here, but the apostle Paul does. Would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians in chapter 2? Real quickly, 2 Corinthians 2. How long does the discipline last? So in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, in my view, verse number 4, this is referring to the guy who was, by church decision, removed from the membership in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because of his immorality and refusal to listen. So the church put him outside. And so he writes in chapter 2 and verse number 4, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. You see the grace here? See the orbit of grace 
not to cause you pain, nor let you know the, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but to, in some measure, not to put it too severely, but to all of you. The whole church is affected by what this immoral person is doing and refuses to listen to the shouting of the church. Stop. All of you. For such a one, this punishment by majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him that he may be over, so he won't be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. And verse 10 is your key. And here it is. Anyone whom you as a church forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. There it is. How long does a church decision last? Until the church decision is he's ready for, to be forgiven. He's repented. He, he, don't keep him out there in full sorrow. But Christ would have us take this lamb and bring him back into the fold. So, men and women, when you ask the question, how long does the church decision last? Well, according to Matthew, it lasts. And then Paul says, but when it actually took place in the life of the Corinthian church, it says this. Now, when he's ready to repent, now another church decision. The church says, we forgive. And when you do that, I do that, the apostle says. And the presence of Christ is here. It's very powerful, men and women. So when you look at 15 down to verse number 20, you, you see this incredible fourth step with a theological foundation. So in verse 18, the church decision. In verse number 19, the will of the Father. And then the presence of Jesus. All of this is connected together. So the church decision becomes a, a, a de facto statement and will not change unless there is repentance on the one who has sinned. Paul adds that footnote. So... The disciples are listening to all this. And bless Peter's heart, verse 21. He comes up to him and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? How about seven times? And Jesus says to him, and some of your text says seven times 70 or 77. The, the point is he, he just puts the number so far out there that you understand that this is a never-ending thing. If that person repents and wants to come back, then here's what you do. You let him come back or let her come back. And, and if somebody sins against you personally, you're going to do the very same thing because you're a microcosm of the larger. And so when somebody sins against you, if you go out there and say, well, you know, they, they just don't appreciate me. Or if you say, they don't do this, or this is that, or you say things that are not to the person that has offended you, you are out of line. Now, you are in danger of Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, 26. And that is this. You're in danger of breaking the sixth commandment. So, you're very close to the edge, so let me tell you, stop it. How about that? You like that? And I say that to myself. Don't do that. Don't go that far. Because I don't want to go against God's plan for the community to be built up in the faith. This is an incredible response by Peter. And I love what Jesus says in verse 22. Let me put a number out here that you'll never be able to grasp, Peter. And here it is. And he puts it out there. Seven seventies or seven times 70, whatever you, your translation said. It's so far out there. I mean, you, you can't even touch it. 
But Jesus is going to have to illustrate this because this is overwhelming. How many times, let me ask you, and at the same time I'm asking me, how many times will you let somebody sin against you before you hold it against them? Just think in your mind. You got a person? You got an incident? How many times? So this is what Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to us as a community of people. And he says this in verse number 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is to be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he began to settle, one who owed him 10,000 talents. If you, you know, you could, there's all kinds of numbers. You pick up a commentary. It's all kind of, basically, it's like this. It, it, this guy owes a billion dollars, and he's a slave. I mean, the number is so outrageous that is absolutely unpayable. That's the point. 10,000 talents? I never heard of that. That's what, that's what a, a major business might do to, to get bigger, to borrow money and to get bigger. But, but a slave? He just puts the number so far out that you understand that this is a parable not about a wicked servant as much as it is a gracious king. And the gracious king should never be confused with a gracious king who's not just. And that's what this story is going to tell. You put the accent on the wicked servant, then you're going to have one view. You put the accent on the king who is gracious and just, I think you're going to have exactly what the context is speaking of. So since they could not pay, verse 25, his master ordered him to be sold, his house, wife, children, all that he had, and payment to be made. Now, it wasn't going to make up the, the billion dollars, but everything's going to be sold, and he's going to take the money and just say, okay, I'll wipe everything else clean. But you're going to be like this the rest of your life. Verse 26, the servant fell on his knees and implored him, have patience with me. I'll pay everything. Really? Billion dollars? And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now just think of that. It's an unpayable debt, and the master looks, and the king looks at him, and as the king looks at him, the king says, you know what? It's done. Go. So verse number 28, the same servant goes out and finds a fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii. That's a payable debt, maybe three, four months wages. You know, somebody could go into the debt prison and sell house, and he has children, sell them as slaves, and he probably could very quickly get out of debt prison and try to work hard to get his children back or get his wife back from debt. But be it as it may, it's something that is payable. And what does he do? It says in verse 28b, he seizes him by the throat and is choking him. Look, look at this. And he says... Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down, gasping for breath is the idea, pleads with him, have patience, I will pay you. But he refused. And he went and put him in prison that he should pay the debt. And his fellows saw what had taken place. They were greatly distressed. And they went and reported their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, you are a, what kind of servant? What does your text say? Wicked? That's exactly right. You are an absolutely wicked servant. I had mercy on you. And in his anger, his master delivered him to jailers that he should pay all his debts. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's not just words. Say, oh yeah, I'll forgive you. 
In your mind, you're thinking, don't you ever do that again. From your heart, last words of your text. Turn back, if you will, to Sermon on the Mount. Would you? Chapter 6, real quickly. My time is about done. I love preaching without my eyeglasses on because then I don't have to see the clock very well. But I do have my big one up here, just so you know, okay? What does that mean? Nothing. (laughs) Chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. Are you ready? What does he do in verse number 13? In verse number 13, he ends the prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from what? Evil or the evil one. Now, that's very important because the evil one, evil, will keep you from forgiveness, will keep you in the bondage of bitterness and anger. And the next verses are extremely important, men and women. The next verses are extremely important. There is an evil of unforgiveness that will literally be bitter within you and it will spring up, Hebrews 12, and many will be defiled. And he says in 14 and 15, we often don't quote this after the Lord's Prayer, but here it is. If you forgive others their trespass, this is what your Heavenly Father will do with you. But if you do not forgive others your trespass, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Remember, this is to the disciples, not the 12, but to the larger group of disciples. And here's, if you understand who Matthew is written to, there's four groups. Group number one is the crowds. They are the fickle people who over here are following him to be healed, following him for food after, you know, the 5,000 and or fed by the loaves and the fish. And then there are the crowd at the very end who were saying, crucify him, crucify him. They're very fickle. Some in the crowd may move into a group called disciples. But disciples have two sides. There are two sides of disciples. Those who are temporary disciples and those who are lasting true disciples. And only time is going to tell. That's why you can read in the Gospels, like John chapter 6, that it says many disciples turned away from Jesus and Jesus looked at his 12 and said, will you also go with them? And Peter says, how can we do that? You're the one that has the words of eternal life. See, you will see disciples forsaking and going and you will see uh, disciples persevering and moving after Christ. But those disciples are, whether temporary or permanent, you don't know which, because they're following Jesus. Are they following for the food? Are they following for the show? Are they, what are they following for? That's why Jesus in Matthew 16, here's my disciple. You are going to do this. You're going to deny yourself. You're going to take up your cross, and you're going to follow me. That's a true disciple. Deny yourself. That's exactly what humility is. That is surrender of self. Matthew 16, 24. So when you look here, Jesus is speaking to the crowds and disciples. And as he's speaking to them, we don't know who is in and who is out. But Jesus is going to say this. When you pray, let me tell you something about your heart. You must have a forgiving heart. If you don't have a forgiving heart, you are revealing that you're only an external disciple. And my father is, does not hear those kinds of prayers. You are missing the mark. That's a trespass. So when you come back to chapter 18, if you will, Matthew 18, it's important that in the back of your mind, you understand you've got, the, you've got this, these groups, the crowds, the disciples, and then you have the 12 
And the fourth group is the leadership which he's, of Israel, which in chapter 23 he's going to direct his message to them. So those are the four audiences in the, in the gospel of Matthew, as well as the rest of the, of the gospels to help you. So when Jesus speaks this particular parable in chapter 18, he is speaking this parable and he says, listen, forgiveness must come from your heart because as I have had mercy, as the king has had mercy on you, then there's a radical change in your life pattern. Your life pattern is no longer to be vengeful. Chapter 12 of Romans, Paul said, vengeance is mine, I will praise says the Lord, as he quotes the Old Testament. Don't act out your vengeance, either in your mind or in your heart. A true disciple has, is a humble man who has surrendered self. Now, as I apply this to us and finish, I want to apply it this way. Did the 12 get the message? How many would say they got the message? Raise your hand. Let's see. How many say they didn't get the message? You raise your hand. And how many just don't know? Okay. <laughs> I'm asking you to interact. You know, the beauty of, of seminary life, I love this. Uh, or when I'm speaking somewhere in a, in a college classroom, uh, there's a lot of interaction because I know people are thinking about things and I want to hear what they're thinking about. Okay. So just think in your mind, did the disciples get this? Well, turn to chapter tw uh, 20, if you will. And let's look as Jesus is winding up his journey from Capernaum to Jericho, which is going to take him in chapter 21 to the Passion Week. He's winding up his last year of ministry. And look what happens in 2020. And the mother of the sons of Zebedee come to him with her sons and kneeling before him, ask him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit on your right hand and on your left hand in your kingdom. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. And so he speaks to them. Look at verse 24. And when the other 10 heard it, they said, let's sing the doxology, praise God for whom all blessings flow. Is that what it says? It says, they were indignant at the two brothers. And that's a, that's a strong word that you find several times throughout the gospel of Matthew to show the, the height of contempt and the reason they were so angry is because they didn't think of it. <laughs> and these guys got mama to do it for them. So here they come. Did they really get humility? Is the bridling of self, the surrender of self. When you work through chapter 20 all the way to chapter 28 in the resurrection, what do you see the disciples? You see them in disarray. Judas hangs himself. The last time you see Peter, he's over there weeping because he denied Jesus three times. And the other ten are just scattered around and no one's there at the cross but some ladies. And we find out a little bit later in the Gospel of John that, that the Apostle John was there with the women. But they're, they're absolutely scattered everywhere in the last day, couple of days. But I want you to turn to Matthew 28 for some really amazing verses for application. In Matthew 28, it begins in verse number one on the Sabbath day and the first day of the week, after the Sabbath day on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, today, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, they go to the tomb. There's a great earthquake and the angel comes, rolls stone back, sits on its appearance like lightning. So notice what happens. Verse six, he is not here. He's risen as he said, come see the place where he lay. Verse seven, then go quickly and tell his disciples. 
that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you're going to see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples, and behold, Jesus meets them. Greetings. And they came up, and they held on to his feet, and they worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, watch carefully, do not be afraid to go and tell my, what is the next word? My brothers. It's the only time in the entire gospel that Jesus calls the 12 brothers. He does use the word brother in chapter 12 when his mother and brothers literally were coming to see him and the place was jam-packed. They couldn't get to him. And they said, your mother and brothers are here. And Jesus said, waving his arms, these who do the will of the father are my mother and my brothers. He did use it in that context. But here, the context in 28 is this, you go tell those close to me, my brothers, they're going to see me in Galilee. What a statement. Only Matthew has a reunion in Galilee. Verse 16. Now the 11 disciples, why only 11? All right, Judas hung himself, really? Chapter 27, right. So the 11 disciples, they go and they flee to the mountains, went to Galilee, to the mountains, to which Jesus had directed them, they saw him, they worshiped him, but some did what? Some were conflicted on the inside. Doesn't tell us who, but there was confliction. So let me bring this to a close by saying to you, you know, did the disciples get it? Well, they didn't get it until they meet in Galilee at the reunion. And at the reunion, a lot of things are going to take place from Galilee to Jerusalem, back to Galilee, and then Jerusalem. And you're going to three times a Jerusalem commission and, and Mark in the last 12 verses, and then Luke, and then in John chapter 20. And then John also has another Galilean commission in chapter 21 called the epilogue. They're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. In Acts 1, it, Jesus says to them, now, no longer travel, stay here in Jerusalem because the power of the Spirit's going to come. But back and forth, they are going between home and Jerusalem. And finally, it begins to dawn upon them. But what I want you to see is this. Jesus in Matthew 28 is implementing Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, he said this, go out and find the little lambs. Bring them in. And here in Matthew 28... You and I would have said, those rascals, I'm, gonna, I, I'm not going to use them at all. Where were you? You were sleeping in the garden. You were saying no. You were denying me. But here is Jesus implementing Matthew 18, regathering 11 stray disciples, disorganized, weak, stumbling, helpless. And men and women, can I say this to you as I close? That's exactly who Jesus uses for his glory. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Would you stand with me, please? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you are stumbling or have stumbled, And I want you to see Christ as he models for us what he preached in Matthew 18. As he takes 
after, pursues after 11 stumbling, weak, helpless disciples and calls them brothers. So be encouraged, but will you ask forgiveness? Will you do that? And if you are a mature believer here, can I ask you this? To whom are we reaching out among the little ones? Who are we pursuing? I'm not talking about lost family and friends. That's important. But in the community, who are we pursuing? Who are we calling brother, sister? Who are we encouraging? These are very important applications because we just don't want to be a community center. We want to be a local church that follows the rules that Jesus gave to us, teaching them to obey the commands. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Lord, would you protect us from casualties in church membership? Would you protect us from being so involved in our job and our work and all these other things, unsaved people and neighborhoods and family are extremely important to reach out to. But Lord, you have called us to model this in Matthew 18, that the community is to be an orbit of grace, an atmosphere of grace, full of humble people who have surrendered their self, their thinking, their actions who are a group of forgiven people who exercise forgiveness with one another, who are free from bitterness and anger. Lord, indeed, your grace amazes us. And may you, through us, amaze others with this same grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor, bless.